1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Sports. My name is Keith Rathbone, and I'm coming to you live from Macquarie University. I am here with Sean Crosson. he is the leader of the Sport and Exercise Research Group at NUI Galloway. He is the co-director of the MA in Sports Journalism and Communication, and he is working at the Houston School of Film and Digital Media. Thank you very much for joining us today, Sean.
0: Thank you, Keith. Delighted to speak with you.
1: Sean, I was um, we're here today to talk about your, your book, Gaelic Games on Film, From Silent Films to Hollywood Hurling, Horror and the Emergence of Irish Cinema, which is out from Cork University Press. It's just a fascinating book. I, I, I really loved reading it and I want to encourage all of our listeners to go pick up a copy right away. Uh, can you tell us, uh, how you developed this project
0: so yeah it's um it's a long story i i, I touched on this briefly in, in my uh, initial acknowledgments but the book is about um it's, it was over 12 years in in the, the in the writing and pr- perhaps even longer than that if you go back to my initial um interest and engagement with gaelic games um i suppose i i the the background and to give some context for that in Ireland, um, perhaps uh, unusually and not, not entirely uniquely, but it's certainly one of the distinctive features of Irish popular culture is that the in terms of sport and sport the engagement with sport in Ireland, uh, the most popular sports um, are the amateur indigenous sports, Gaelic football and hurling or Gaelic games, as we call them collectively. And um, I grew up in a context in Ireland where... Uh, Gaelic Games were a key part of the local community and of what in many ways defined the community and that, if anything, has increased with the increasing secularisation of Ireland a uh, country that for many people, I think, and many of your listeners perhaps will be associated with historically with uh, Catholicism, the Catholic Church and uh, as a powerful force in Irish society. But as that force has has declined, um, Gaelic games and indigenous sport has has grown in importance as a key kind of social uh, fulcrum for, for communities, particularly in rural Ireland. And I grew up in, in rural Ireland and grew up in a context where Gaelic games was was a key component within that society. And latterly, as a as an academic, um, I developed a specialism within film studies here at NUI Galway and about well, two in 2006 there was an academic conference here in NUI Galway it was the Irish um, Sports History Association and it was uh, hosted um, by a, a colleague of mine at that time in NUI Galway who asked me at the time is there is there much Gaelic games on film and I, it hadn't been something I had given a great deal of consideration to at that time but it began a journey that 13 years later, um, a fascinating journey really for me to find that there is a, a, an extraordinary history of the depiction of Gaelic Games on Ireland that it goes right back to the very earliest days of the 20th century and that it provides, a, again, a very unique and uh, insight into the sport as they developed through the 20th century and into the 20th first century but also not just in terms of the insight it gives you into how the sports have developed and of course uh, the the films of the early 20th century into the mid-20th century are the only moving image record we have prior of course to television or the advent of other digital media forms in the more recent past Um, and in that respect there is a historic a crucial historical record of the evolution of these um, sports but they also are interesting in so far as they give us an insight into the differing ways in which sport features um, in popular culture, both from the point of view of how these sports functioned within uh, an international context, particularly within American cinema, and I go into some detail in that in the book and what I call Hollywood hurling chapter, how it functioned within kind of mainstream international film, and also and latterly. Uh, and how it functioned within indigenous Irish cinema and became a key part of of a uh, defining period in the emergence of a distinctive film culture within Ireland in the latter half of the 20th century.
1: I, I mean, I was, um, while reading, just impressed with the diversity of avenues in which you kind of pursue these, these questions of, of gaelic games and film i mean looking um i i think most for me most what i was most interested in before i picked up the book was this question of kind of the way in which sport helped shape irish identity and politics that's what i was prepared for the whole book to be about but in fact you touch on uh a very much on the, the way in which sport helped shape this development of this film culture as you're mentioning but also uh, shaped the development of, of um film itself, even in your early chapters, and, and, and so much of our cinema might be shaped by by sport. I, in my reading, and you can tell me if, if this was wrong, Sean, uh, I kind of read, I mean, you have nine chapters, but I read it in four blocks. You have kind of your your, your early block on, on early cinema and new, the newsreel era. Then you have this kind of international view with the Hollywood hurling uh, and your look at Rooney. And then the, the, the growth of a kind of Irish film, um, uh, what what you might call an Irish film industry, uh, in 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 the post war period, and then finally a kind of more contemporary look at at Irish uh, film and its engagement with these sports. So I I want to go chronologically. I hope that that works for you. Um, so I was hoping <laughs> I was hoping we could start a little bit with. Um, this era of early cinema, and, and, and where are we first seeing Gaelic sport in film, and how does that help uh, influence kind of the, the, the film as a technology,
0: even? Well, yeah, so the, the the beginnings, as I talk about in the book, go right back to what were at the time called actuality, early actuality films. This was before even the, the Uh, for the newsreel what became the newsreel became established in the in towards the end of the first decade of the 20th century but right back at the very beginning uh in a way like we have of course we go back to the lumiere brothers in france and what they were pioneering at that time and you have uh, you know contemporaneously in the u.s with what thomas edison and his collaborators were were developing but in those very very early days of film film was a need uh, of a of a subject in a way because it was extraordinarily new and experimental and even people that we now associate as being kind of extraordinary key figures in the popularisation of film, like, for example, Charlie Chaplin himself at one point regard, remarked that, oh, it's just a fad. He wasn't convinced that it would survive. And, of course, we now know it went on to become this huge, huge international popular cultural forum that, you know, has influenced... A, a range of subsequent forms, but in those very early days, so film, this new experimental, what it was, the cinematograph in in, in um, France or what became movies in the US, um, it needed a subject, and sport was uh, uh, already uh, a popular subject. It was already uh, had a captive audience, and so so far you had sport, and and interestingly, of course, the two of them. In the way, in, in so far as that the codification or the whole setting down of rules around sport emerged just before film came along, so the whole modernization period, sport uh, provided the early filmmakers with a, a, a subject that, in its both in its popularity and its engagement of a wide diverse audience, and also um, in the in in the way in which sport was the codification of sport, so it gave it a. Uh, a, a limited canvas in a time when cameras weren't that um, mobile, quite rudimentary, um, you could set up a camera and you could film like dra- a dramatic activity um, and sport provided that. So whether it was in the US where sport was a, was a key component of early cinema, early Edison film or in for the Lumia brothers in France were similar many of their early films focused on sport. And in Ireland, eventually, when early filmmakers uh, began to um, film uh, um, in Ireland and to develop uh, film production companies began to emerge, indigenous sports from very early on began to be to be filmed. Now, unfortunately, um, the first decade we don't have any surviving films, but we have records and in terms of um, newspaper reports of the screenings of early. Uh, Of films of early films of hurling and of Gaelic games and of uh, some indication there of the the responses that they were getting in terms of I mean one can imagine at the time film was a very new form and then you combine that with an increasingly popular form of indigenous um, cultural practice that they they had uh, an important role in both. in mutually popularizing this new form and and the growing popularization of indigenous sport in Ireland, but as we get into the nineteen tens, fortunately we do have a few films that survive from the nineteen tens. There's a, a an early nineteen fourteen um, actuality film uh, of uh, the All Ireland replay of that year in um, Gaelic football between Wexford County, Wexford, and, and County. Uh, Kerry, and that survives one, one minute 49 seconds survive of it but that in itself is fascinating giving us a sense of the changing rules and the changing patterns within the sport of that period and four years later in a fiction film again by another early Irish uh, indigenous production company called the Film Company of Ireland in their first kind of major feature film a five reel film called Nagau we have a, a one minute sequence featuring hurling which is the earliest uh, episode on film we have of that sport and in each of those we get these uh really kind of quite extraordinary insights into the sports as they were being perceived and uh engaged in at that time and indeed in an earlier period because not nagel the film was based on a on a novel that was set in the mid 19th century so these were filmmakers looking back to the sport, even before it was codified. Um, And the, in both instances, in throughout this period, sport was an important part of the providing, uh, again, a, a popular subject for emerging film companies that could help them to bring this new art form, this new technology, to, to audiences across Ireland, much as it was doing across the world, whether it was in the United States, in France, in Britain, or or, or in other parts of the world.
1: And that was a, a big question, at least in the, the the second chapter of your book, in some ways, on the, on the newsreel era, which is who gets to produce these images of Irish sport and, and to what end? So I wondered if you can tell us a little bit about... Um, about sport in this newsreel era who was who was filming irish sport uh to what end and and maybe a little bit about uh the gaa and their response and and, and maybe tell our listeners a little bit who the GAA is because they're such an important uh, organization within your study
0: absolutely yeah i'm, I'm uh, maybe i'll in responding i might start <laughs> at the end of your question if, if you don't mind i start a little bit about who GAA are because of course i'm Living in a context where I don't always appreciate that for international listeners and and uh, audiences that they may not and probably aren't aware of of what or the, what the those that those letters stand for the Gaelic Athletic Association um, are and they are an extraordinarily important uh, institution in Ireland. Um, they were founded they, as an association in eighteen eighty four, founded to for the preservation and the the promotion of Indigenous sport, and they were founded in a, in a very challenging uh, period. Of course, this was not that long after the Irish famine. It was a period when, of course, Ireland was still very much part of the United Kingdom, as in what is now the Republic of Ireland. Uh, it was a period of, of great poverty and and emigration from Ireland. Um, but it was also a period of, of uh, uh, when groups in Ireland were attempting to uh, bring uh, the to, to re to bring the culture back, to bring the society back and to grow a sense of a distinct culture and a distinct political kind of energy in Ireland. So you had a growing, a rising kind of nationalism and um, both political nationalism and cultural nationalism and within that, that period, the 1880s, 1890s, sport was one of the most important uh, aspects of that growing movement which would eventually lead to uh, a rising, a rebellion in 1916 and eventually uh, a war of independence and eventually the setting up of what would become the Republic of Ireland um, in 1920, in 1922. But, well, the free state at that time and Republic of Ireland from 1949. But in the period we're talking about uh, the foundation of the of the GA, sports became a, a very, very important uh, and perhaps the most important aspect of popular nationalism. Um, it was something that as it was described by uh, latterly by historians that, that took off like a prairie fire across Ireland um in a, in a period of great um difficulty, great challenges. Uh, Gaelic games in particular, provided uh, it it was about the distinctiveness of what the sports were, as well as the, of course, the enjoyment that they provided to people who who either participated in it or, or went to watch the games. But they allowed um for. In a context where, for most Irish people, um, unlike most other European countries, uh, to a large extent, the one of the most distinguishing aspects of your identity is your language, and the Irish language for most people was was no longer their their main, so as it is today, the language went into decline with the famine in the eighteen forties, and also for various other reasons to do it. Um, oppression under colonialism, but we don't have time to get into now. But just to say that sport sport became very, very important as a defining, a distinctive defining element of what it was to be Irish in the context <laughs> of a rising type of Irish nationalism. And this would feed into uh, tr- tr- the late 19th and into the 20th century and indeed it continues to be an important part of that process to, this, to, to today. So the GEA has been Extraordinarily successful as it grew now it, it in Ireland today, it has grown throughout the 20th century. And we have an extraordinary stadium, one of the largest stadiums in Europe, um, Crow Park, which uh, has a capacity of 85,000. Uh, it attracts capacity crowds for the major competition, which are the All-Ireland Finals in Hurling and in Gaelic football. It is the most popular sport, sports across the island of Ireland. That's the other thing, including... within the north of Ireland, particularly among the nationalist community in the north of Ireland. Um, And these sports are continued to have that as a key part of them is that they are amateur sports but played at a very, very high uh, level um, uh, but nonetheless by by amateurs. And they've had an international imprint among the Irish diaspora, including in Australia and the US. Um, There are over some 3,000 clubs now uh, between Ireland and internationally that are engaged in um, Gaelic Games. Just one other thing I'll say about the GA and then I'll come to the, the film element um, is that one of the kind of critical decisions the Gaelic Athletic Association made from the very beginning was that it would build it, the core um, entity for Gaelic Games from the beginning was the parish, the local kind of parish, the local community, and then the local county. So there's kind of two levels, if you like. Well, there's a variety of levels, but for most clubs, uh, for most people engaging in Gaelic games, they're engaged by the local club um, at their parish level and then by their county. And those connections became critical to how people's own sense of identity, sense of place, became bound up. And sport, more than any Gaelic game, more than any other force perhaps in Ireland, has affirmed and popularises pe- people's own sense of identity. as bound up with either the, a, a distinctive place and distinctive county a, in Ireland. And that has continued to, to be sustained right up until today. Now, when we get into the 1920s and onwards, in terms of how film engaged with Gaelic Games, there was a a, a period of hope that I've already referred to in terms of an indigenous film culture in the 1910s. You had a number of uh, companies com- coming into existence for whom Gaelic Games was part of the... Films that they produced, including um, the Irish Animated Picture Company, the early actuality company that produced the first, the surviving footage of the nineteen fourteen All Ireland replay in football, and the Film Company of Ireland that was up in nineteen sixteen and produced Knocknagow. Unfortunately, both of these companies didn't survive the kind of revolutionary period that is the nineteen tens for, for a variety of reasons, and indeed in the immediate aftermath of independence in nineteen twenty two for the Republic of Ireland, indeed similar things applied in the north of Ireland for different reasons, Um, the government uh, were not very supportive of indigenous film culture. In fact, film, for what was a very, in the south, Catholic, and for similar reasons, the Protestant church also had had a, uh, in the north of Ireland, had a a kind of a uh, lot of suspicion around film as a form as a decadent foreign form that might um, impede the attempts to promote a kind of a strong Catholic identity in Ireland. So, in fact, one of the first pieces of legislation that the new parliament in the south of Ireland, the D- 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 Ireland, as it's called, um, passed was the F- Censorship of Films Act, which was a very, very restrictive act and a, an act that was very much informed by Catholic concerns and Catholic dogma. So... For this reasons, these reasons, there was very little indigenous film culture developed, or an infrastructure for film to be to develop as an indigenous culture in Ireland in the Af- in the nineteen twenties and into nineteen thirties. what film work was done was done by international companies uh, outside of Ireland, and um, um, particularly when we talk about newsreels, British film companies, film companies like British Pathé, like British Gaumont and british movie tone um to name three of the most prominent um these companies were again as their names would suggest primarily focused at a british uh, market for their newsreels but they did produce some uh irish items and items and co- quite more i think than most irish people would would expect or are given that they were primarily british companies but they did produced quite a number of, of newsreel episodes about Gaelic uh, games, both Gaelic football and hurling. Um, partly these were produced because they were trying to sign get contracts signed with Irish um, exhibitors, Irish cinemas, and as part of the deals, to sweeten the deals, so to speak, they'd say, well, we'll, we'll film a, a, Gaelic games, uh, some, a Gaelic games episode and we'll include that in a package that would have been mostly made up of material aimed at a British audience, some of which was quite controversial in the Irish context when it focused on the British royal family, for example. Um, So as a result of this, it meant that the depiction of Gaelic Games for those years, particularly from the 1920s through to the 1940s, was being driven or being produced by external British companies. And while those images today remain really, Important as the only moving image record we have of the sports in those periods, they also um, reveal a, a peculiar eye on Ireland <laughs> and often a, a limited understanding. For example, of the of the sports concerned, if there was any understanding among those who were commenting on the images, And they may, for example, in some episodes, uh, refer to teams incorrect by the incorrect name or they may refer to other counties as clubs or they may use terminology associated with association football to apply to Gaelic football, like, for example, uh, the for the throwing or whatever, <laughs> terms that aren't um, appropriate to, to Gaelic football. So in that way, the, these clubs uh, uh, they, they do provide, on one level, an important record of the, of the sports but on another level they also reveal uh, the kind of disjunctures that, that that can come about and the um, peculiarities that can come about when, when these sports are being depicted from from primarily a, an external perspective the other thing that occasionally occurs particularly in movie British movie tone newsreels is that they can use Gaelic games partly to affirm kind of certain stereotypes about the Irish, for example, that the Irish are somehow more inclined towards violence or that they're more kind of backward. or um, and Particularly this is evident at points of political tension between Ireland and uh, Britain. This was particularly the case in the 1930s when there was uh, an economic war between Ireland and Britain. And you find that British movie tone newsreels which were owned by Lord Rothermere who also owned the Daily Mail who was uh, a supporter of uh, Oswald Mosley's fascists and was of that inclination himself and had a a very um, I suppose negative view of Eamon de Valera who was the political leader in Ireland at that time the, the then to, um, Prime Minister of Ireland uh, in the 1930s. And some of this is evident in how the newsreels depict Irish sport in that period and in, into the 1940s. Yeah, I,
1: I was um, fascinated uh, a little bit at the end of that chapter when you were just pulling apart um, some of the different sympathies of the different companies, British Pate, Gaumont, uh, especially movie, movie tone, showing that even within even the, the British um, movie producers is not one way of, of looking at the Gaelic games. Um, ho- Hollywood was also interested at the time, and I, and I, I think it's fair to say, um, looking at some of these same stereotypes about about the Irish. So, what kind of depictions of Gaelic games are we seeing in this era of, of Hollywood hurling?
0: Yeah, I mean, that was, for me, one of the most fascinating discoveries was, um, I suppose, first of all, discovering that there were <laughs> films, Hollywood films about hurling. Um, and then to to kind of watch the films, and and just to give you a bit of that, I don't know if I, I probably touched upon it in the book, but uh, when I was, uh, what happened there is I, I was doing some research in the US in, in uh, a small library, uh, archive in in madison wisconsin and i found they had in their basement they had what had happened was the american film institute had distributed um surviving uh film uh, material um across very small archives in the us to kind of share out the material and uh the this archive the historical archive in, in madison wisconsin They had received a a range of material, but it had been catalogued. So it was in a kind of sealed box in their basement. So we went down there and opened it up and we found several fascinating Hollywood productions, uh, short films from the 1930s about hurling. Um, uh, There was uh, several episodes of a very popular comedy sports sequence uh, series called, well, one called Sports Lance, the other called Sports Trills, which was produced by... Uh, the Vitaphone Corporation for Warner Bros. in 19 in the early 1930s but m- produced this, uh, and narrated um, by uh, uh, one of the key um, the key kind of figures in sports commentary in that period, Ted Hoosing and Ted Hoosing was extraordinarily, influential figure for sports commentary in the US uh, in, the, in a formative period of radio commentary and subsequently telev- television commentary on sport. And these were very, very popular, um, I suppose, sports items that were shown uh, in, in cinema schedules in this period. Um, and in it, there's two that feature hurling. And it, what was interesting to me, I suppose, not not entirely surprising, was that they're they're, they're using hurling essentially uh, to affirm a particular stereotype about the Irish. Well, on one hand, it's about bringing out the comic potentiality of these sports. On the other hand, it's about you know hurling, looking at the sport and saying, you, you know, you couldn't if you were to invent in a sport for the Irish, that could potentially affirm the stereotype. Hurling is the one that that would seem to do it because it has that potential. Uh, on first encounter for violence and for injury and so on, because it has people whacking um, small balls with sticks and injuries that that may occur. Now, of course, this is far from the reality for most, at the elite level, um, for most people engaged in hurling, there's no more potential for injury than most other contact sports. But uh, it did seem to have a kind of peculiarity about it and a potential that was responded to cinematically by Hollywood studios in this period. Particularly um, there's the Ted Husing films in the early 1930s. There's an MGM film called simply Hurling, a short film from 1926, which is a a extraordinary depiction of, um, of Hurling and its focus on the violence of the sport and the way in which the sport is even described in terms of the publicity material around it at the time. And I've, I've, refer to some of this in the book where hurling is described as a scientific form of mass murder for example and uh, this kind of is integrated into the, the, the diegesis of the film itself and then I, I also refer to a later film in the 1950s which was, there was one short about hurling that Paramount um, Studios produced called uh, Three Kisses which was Oscar nominated in that year the best live action short um, and that also is a is a fascinating depiction in terms of how it was a work produced by a Hollywood studio, but one that was also an attempt by both the Gaelic Athletic Association and the then the Irish tourist board, uh, board Falsha who worked together with this company to try and address some of the kind of stereotypical depictions of earlier depictions, not entirely successfully, but in its time, it still is a, is a fascinating uh, record of, of the sport and of, of, the tensions around its depiction um, between that international perspective and the indigenous concerns about depicting sport um, more positively I suppose we took it all we brought them to our land an
1: endless night, ember hot and icy cold the rage of the earth we made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not. But she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade Two. Play it now with Game Pass. No, I mean we've focused uh, mostly, a little bit on kind of reportage of of sport, but. There are also dramatic depictions of these sports coming out of um, the United States and the in the UK at this time too, aren't there? Can we talk a little bit about some of these kind of uh, depictions of of hurling within within dramas?
0: Absolutely. So um, one one of the things that we're talking a lot about hurling, and I should probably just say a little bit insofar as one of the in terms of in Ireland and in terms of Gaelic games in Ireland. Um, the most popular Gaelic game by far is Gaelic football. It's played much more widely across the entire island, and it, it generally attracts larger crowds, um, with the exception of the All-Ireland final, the final stages of the main competitions, which are All-Ireland, what we call the All-Ireland series in both Gaelic football and hurling. They are the Super Bowls, if you like, from the American context, if I could take a, make a, a comparison with that. But in the Irish context, they are the Super Bowls of of Gaelic games but Gaelic football is generally much much more popular but what's in what, one of the things for me was when I looked at films um, and it, particularly international productions that hurling is by far the most popular sport that's depicted and in a way that disconnects with what I was referring to already that it is it does have uh, a, it, it is the, perhaps the more distinctive sport it also has those kind of the, the the potential to connect with the stereotype about the violent Irish or the kind of slightly irrational or peculiar Irish stereotype. Um, it also has a kind of a connection, a mythical connection. So hurling has an ancient pedigree. It's, there are descriptions of the sport or a sport like hurling going back thousands of years in, in, in Gaelic manuscripts and mythology. Figures like Cuchulain or or Setanta in Irish mythology, so it has that kind of historical and mythological resonance, which Gaelic football does not. Um, and some of that we find feeding into to film as well and into into film drama. And in terms of, I mentioned the Hollywood shorts, but I, I suppose a key figure for the representation of Ireland uh, from American cinema is 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 the. Irish-American director, John Ford. Um, Of course, an extraordinarily important figure in the classical Hollywood period, particularly for um, the Western. But he also had, uh, both of his parents um, came from the West of Ireland. Um, His films are often informed by Irish culture and um, Irish concerns, particularly as that function in the American context. But with regard to Gaelic games they also feature occasionally in his work. And this goes right from the biggest commercial film he ever commercially successful film produced was a film called The Quiet Man from 1952, which was set in Ireland and is a, a returning emigrant narrative about an Irish-American coming back and trying to reintegrate into a community in the West of Ireland. But within that, there are there is a reference to, to hurling at one point, but using it, again, in a context where Harling is referred to uh, and is it prefaces a, a, a very lengthy uh, fight sequence at the end of the film, and there is the suggestion again that hurling is is connected with or juxtaposed with with violence, and in each of his other subsequent films, including um, the Rising of the Moon from nineteen fifty eight and Young Cassidy from sixty five, you have sequences that either have Hurley players depicted coming back battered and bruised on stretchers after game or Hurley players engaged in, a fi- in fisticuffs with members of the Royal Irish Constabulary in, in Young Cassidy but one of the things I talk about in the book and it's easy to look at these as people did at the time particularly the rising of the moon about, around which there was a lot of controversy um, at the time and a delegation from the Gaelic Association that went to the set to complain about the way in which games were being depicted. Um, but at the same time, one of the other things that I, I touch upon in the book is how these, uh, how Ford's films are constantly kind of, they're they're foregrounding the stereotype, but they're semu- simultaneously undermining it, or questioning it, or poking fun at it, or interrogating it in some way. Um, And this is an important part of what um, Ford was engaged in, indeed what other Irish-American directors were engaged in at this period, which was taking kind of familiar stereotypes about the the Irish and transforming them from what were previously negative, threatening stereotypes into something that was much more uh, non-threatening or amusing or entertaining. And it's a larger process that saw Irish America move from the margins of American society to the very centre of American society. By the end of the 1950s and 1960, 61, you have the election of Irish American President John F. Kennedy. And part of the process that enabled that to happen was uh, uh, how Irish America itself transformed true Things like using Gaelic games, but transforming them, using them in a kind of a comic context, transforming the the kind of concerns of the threat that was perceived around Irishness or Irish stereotypes into more acceptable and positive forms. And film was was certainly part of that process. Um, Another film I talk about, um, and there are several others we may come to if we have time, um, is the, the British film Rooney which came out in in that period in the 1950s and this is a feature-length film based on a a Catherine cookson novel um that was had nothing to do with sport but it was transformed entirely and moved to ireland about the only thing that was kept from the original story which was set in uh south shields in the northeast of england was the binman central protagonist but in The film, he's transformed into a Dublin bin man whose real talents lie on the hurling field as a hurler with the local team. And in that, you can see uh, some of the stereotypes coming through from both um, The Quiet Man, but also those British stereotypes around violence and and sport. But being worked through kind of a comic um, idiom, if you like. So using comedy as a way to draw the stereotypes, but also a way, I guess, to um, deactivate the kind of threat that may have been associated with those stereotypes previously.
1: So, in the latter half of the 20th century, Irish filmmakers and Irish film organizations start to, I guess, wrest control of the the depictions of, of Gaelic games away from International filmmakers and, and and use them in particular ways. Uh, so I wonder you cover this in in chapters five and six in your book, and you're looking at the the National Film Institute of Ireland and uh, Gail Lynn. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. I apologize.
0: Uh, no, no, you're not. Not that's perfectly pronounced.
1: Okay, good. <laughs> I'm glad to hear that. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about some of these Irish. Uh, Film institutions and how they were using using uh, filmic depictions of sport. sport pardon me, as a way to 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 um, you know shape Irish identity in this in this troubled period in in the middle of the twentieth century.
0: Yeah, so I, I mentioned earlier that um, in the immediate aftermath of independence, so early nineteen twenties, that the church and state were very. Uh, suspicious of film as a form and uh, the only state policy really towards film for the first couple of decades was censorship and controlling film and by no, in no way trying to encourage an indigenous film culture uh, things changed um from about 1936 on and the reason again it was the church that kind of led the change given the power it held in ireland at the period in the time in that the uh, then pope pope pius XI issued an encyclical called Vigilante Cura, which for the first time identified film as actually having a beneficial and positive role, potentially, uh, as an educational resource. And this inspired members of the clergy in Ireland to become more involved in film practice. And it eventually led, in 1945, to the setting up of the National Film Institute of Ireland under the auspices of the Archbishop of Dublin, John Charles McQuaid, And made up of a board of, I think there was five priests and some then lay film enthusiasts on that board. Now, they began initially, but I should say importantly, one of the people on that board was the Ard Rooney, or an English general secretary of the Gaelic Athletic Association, Poric O'Creeve. And one of the initially it was set up to bring in films from international productions that could educate people, mostly. You know, around Catholic theology and, and and the like, and the missions, for example, spreading the word in in in, in the developing world, as we now call it. But uh, very quickly they began to make their own productions, and within three years of being set up, um, they began to make films, highlights packages of the All Ireland finals in Gaelic football and in hurling, um, from nineteen forty eight on, and these were. Very, very popular films in this period, as one could imagine, they were uh, much longer and more detailed and more insightful in terms of being produced by people who actually understood Gaelic games and could provide that kind of informed commentary on the games. Um, So from 1948 on, up until the emergence, and indeed after the emergence of of television, so Irish indigenous television started filming Gaelic games from 1962 onwards, but particularly up to that period, These films, short ten-minute productions, highlights of the All Ireland Finals and boat hurling and Gaelic football, were were produced every year and circulated around the country. And these were some of the most popular early examples of of what was a growing indigenous Irish film culture. And the film that indigenous culture in this period through the forties, fifties, sixties was primarily about filming. what we'd call kind of rudimentary doc- documentary or, or rather than fiction it was luck filming aspects of social reality here sport or other aspects of life in ireland in that period and um, there was quite a few natural history films for example also produced films about um indigenous traditional music and so on and sport was one of the most popular examples and it gave various filmmakers who would go on to to success in other spheres the opportunity to learn their, their trade and to build up a kind of experience and expertise in film practice. Um, they drew large audiences across Ireland to cinemas and they're a key record for us now of the development of Gaelic games between the forties, right up until the end of the 1960s, when they were being produced less often because television had basically filled that space and was now producing them. Um, Gaelin, um, you mentioned there, so in the same period, well, in the 1950s, uh, another organisation that emerged that uh, was important uh, was Gaelin, an Irish language organisation um, that's dedicated to the promotion and preservation of the, of the Irish language. And they realised very quickly that film was an important tool. It was, they were. It was set up in 1953, and from then on, they started to produce from 1956 to 1963 an indigenous newsreel called Avyurc Erin or A View on Ireland in English, that was included sport quite prominently. And the uh, but what the advantage of the Gaelic the National Film Institute uh, films focused on just the final stage of the All Ireland series, the finals, whereas the uh, Gaelic shot short um items bring of, of earlier stages in that competition and in the other major competition, the National League, um, across Ireland. And these films are fascinating in terms of giving us a moving image kind of record of of other parts of Ireland in this period through the 1950s and into the 1960s. And they also produced two longer films that I talk about in some lent in the book. Uh, one about football, uh, Gaelic football called Pell in 1962 and one about hurling call uh, Christy Ring from 1964 and Christy Ring um for people unfamiliar with hurling is um arguably the greatest exponent of the sport of hurling ever he's has a godlike status in Ireland for followers of Gaelic games even today um it's hard to think of an equivalent in in any perhaps Messi in association football today or or, or Ronaldo or someone of of that status so th- this is an extraordinarily important film in terms of uh, him sharing the skills of of hurling um, uh, in that period and, and having a record uh, of that. But these two institutions, these two organisations and the films they produced were uh, a critical part of an emerging Indigenous film culture in which Gaelic Games was, an, uh, again, the... the one of the most popular subjects that was was featured in this in this indigenous film culture that was emerging in this period
1: and and, and really for me uh, what stuck out for me was um, a, a critical way of of reforging at home in and, 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 and inter- potentially even internationally this idea of what Irishness was instead of you know violent sports these were Sophisticated, gay, you know. So, could you talk a, a little bit about uh, set that up a little bit? I think it's crucial, of course, because your, your latter two chapters kind of introduced more critical views on that as well.
0: <laughs> yes, no, absolutely. Like it, it, you're, you're absolutely right. So, the, I mean, that was for both organizations, for both the National Film Institute of Ireland and then for Lind, they were key components of a uh, uh, po- popular movement. In the aftermath of World War Two, to redefine and to celebrate Irishness, what it is to be Irish, and 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 in in a period that Ireland, uh, the Republic of Ireland, was um, neutral during World War Two, so that was a, a kind of a challenging statement and, and process in terms of a context where the UK was, of course, very very much in the, in World War Two, and uh, and the US on both sides, and a lot of international pressure. So out of that there was this increasing sense of, of the importance of our own kind of in Ireland of a distinctive culture and a distinctive um, polity. And uh, within that, both the National Film Institute and Galen were using sport as a means of, of celebrating and indeed of defining what it is to be Irish and that these sports were critical in that process. Uh, they were of Ireland. They were popular. They were distinctive and they also i mean the other i mean i touch upon this briefly but there is a gender issue here of course that we we, we need to acknowledge that these the gaelic association is is only uh, has only members has only um men and boys so to speak it doesn't have female members and um, there is another association that plays gaelic games called the ladies gaelic football uh, association and there's also a another sport called camogie, which is the female version of hurling. And there's a lot to cover here. I'm not going to get into this in great detail, but just to say that the Gaelic Association has always been about Irish masculinity. And in this period, there was also that focus that sport wasn't just something that was distinctly Irish and provided a means of celebrating and affirming that distinctiveness, but also about the mask, you know, celebrating physicality and masculinity. And that these are also components within what is, is going on in this period in the 1950s, 1960s, um, in the in the in the aftermath of World War II. And in a period when, uh, particularly in the 50s, was, again, an extraordinarily challenging period in Ireland, a period of very high unemployment, high immigration. And that sport was one of the few kind of positive forces within our popular cultural forces that uh, really grew and blossomed uh, in terms of, for example the attendance at sports which by the end of the early 1960s you had over 90,000 people attending all Ireland finals in Dublin um, It can growing hugely in that period and that would, that growth would be sustained through the 1960s and into the 70s
1: so it is in that period of the 60s and 70s though and here uh, we we come to your your final two chapters before your conclusion um it's starting really you you point out in the year 1968, such a momentous year in European history, um, a more critical view on, on Gaelic games. So I'm wondering if, you know, uh, you can, you can walk us through maybe a couple, uh, maybe one, one iteration from that early sixties to eighties period, and then maybe one film from uh, the more contemporary period that presents a more complicated view of, of Irishness and through, through the lens of,
0: one of the Gaelic games. Yeah, so the film that I, I talk about—that's kind of a key text on a, on a number of levels, but including from the Gaelic games—is is Rocky Road, uh, Rocky Road to Dublin, um, directed by Peter Lennon in, um, in nineteen sixty-seven, released sixty-eight. A film that was not just important in terms of how it casts a critical eye on on Gaelic games in Ireland, but more generally how it was one of the first texts film text to critically engaged with Irish society and culture Uh, but not from the point of view of the stereotype but here it's about asking searching questions about whether the society had really moved on post-independence whether the church had too much power in in Ireland whether poverty and uh, emigration and various other kind of social issues were being adequately addressed by by governments and uh, within that uh, Peter Lennon focuses to, in one section on Gaelic, the Gaelic Athletic Association and Gaelic games, and he asks quite he kind of interrogates. Um, in particular, he's asking questions about the ways in which the kind of more narrow-minded conception of Ar- Irishness that was that still continued to be promoted by that association in that period, uh, evident, for example, in uh, at that time and right into the early ne- up until nineteen seventy-three, the Gaelic Athletic Association forbid. Members, uh, or people playing or attending uh, their, their sports from engaging with or attending any in inverted commas scarecrows, scare um, foreign sports uh, by that they refer not to, by the way, baseball or American football, but specifically to cricket, uh, soccer, and um, rugby, um, English sports which were viewed as, uh, you know viewed very negatively in that period by the people running Gaelic games. And this is one of the points that Lennon takes up, that we needed a, a more open, more progressive sense of Irishness and that the way in which the Gaelic Light Association was maintaining this ban was problematic in that context and needed to be moved beyond. And so that's part of that documentary film he produced. It looks at that and asks questions about whether... This, about the need for for Ireland as a whole and Gaelic Athletic Association uh, in this context as well, to move on, to embrace a, a more open, a more progressive, a more pluralistic sense of, of Irishness in that period. And those sentiments would feed into uh, a, what we might call a critically engaged Indigenous film culture that began to emerge into the 1970s with a range of filmmakers like, for example, Bob Quinn, Joe Comerford, Pat Murphy, who would continue that interrogation of Irish society and culture. Um, one of the films I talk about from the 1980s in the book is a film Clash of the Ash um, by Fergus Tighe, which is very much, again, casting a critical eye on Irish society in the 1980s, another decade of very high unemployment, uh, high immigration of political malaise. Um, and again, raising questions about the failure of the state to really uh, respond proactively and progressively to these challenges, one of which is the continuing, very powerful uh, role of the Catholic Church in Ireland in that period. And he uses sport, he looks at uh, uses hurling as uh, as the kind of frame for that, uh, the star player of the local hurling club um, as a part of that investigation and of that critique. Um, And it's it's still, it's one of the best kind of fiction depictions of hurling still stands today in that respect um, in its insight into Irish society, into the kind of important role that sport has in Irish culture, but also as a kind of a critically engaged text exploring the, uh, I suppose, like Lennon, he's he's raising questions about whether part of the reason why Ireland was not engaging more effectively with, various social challenges was that it was too, it was being held back by a kind of a, a nostalgic, narrow nationalist kind of view of itself and of Irish society, where it needed to be much more and open and pluralist um, to international influence, but cultural and political, and to move forward in those areas.
1: In your, your your final chapter, I think, for for me, it was one of the most interesting. It it in some ways looks at how people looked at Gaelic games as a way to re evaluate Irish history, independence um, in particular. Um, I I don't know if you want to talk really briefly about um, Michael Collins and in, in, in Gaelic games or, or Ken Loach's When When That shakes the Barley, which is a film I loved in Gaelic games, um, but. I, I'd love it if you could talk about that really quickly as well.
0: Yeah, no problem. Um, the final chapter, which my uh, the copy editor uh, said was one of the best titles he'd ever come across in chapter. I don't, I'm, I'm going <laughs> to, <Yeah, laughs> I yeah, just yeah, have to mention yeah, that.
1: Cause can it it, if, or I could give it if you want.
0: <laughs> yeah, so the Hurley is the new chainsaw, Gaelic Games and the Debris Cinema. I, I just explained that uh, as a way into what, to, to this, um, to your question. And that is that there uh one of the things I, I, I talk about in this chapter is uh the way in which in, in the contemporary context you have really um a variety of forces informed by those historical precedences and contemporary kind of challenges that are coming together to produce uh, a, you know, a quite some some interesting some um i suppose um more, more curious in some ways depictions of Gaelic games, but also in, in other ways uh, more innovative depictions and how Gaelic games can function within an increasing transnational um, world we live in today. Um, and one of the ways in which that's evident is how it combines with, say, genre and popular genre. So I, I talk in that chapter about how Parling features within this one horror film called Dead Meat um, and how it becomes... Uh, a force to kind of uh, a part of uh, an attempt by an indigenous or the local culture to protect itself from marauding zombies. right? (laughs) And that the stereotype in a way, the stereotype of the violent uh, uh, violence associated with hurling is transformed into something that becomes about defending a local community, Um, but also kind of poking fun at, at the stereotypes that we've we've already talked about. In terms of the two films you mentioned, Michael Collins and um, and uh, The Wind and Shakes the Barely, so I, I kind of look at these uh, and kind of con- in contrasting ways. Insofar as that Michael Collins was a film directed by uh, by Neil Jordan, but produced and, and funded by Warner Bros. again, um, but a relatively mid-budget film, but a film that was uh, very much about. Uh, producing this epic Hollywood story based around this huge figure in 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 the war of independence and in that kind of tumultuous period at the end of the 1910s in Ireland Michael Collins the leader of the military leader I suppose you might say of the of of the Irish movement towards independence and within that it it features one of the most um I suppose Disturbing episodes in that War of Independence in in 1920, when members of the British Army um, stormed Crow Park in Dublin um, during a game between Tipperary, a Gaelic football game between Tipperary and Dublin, and opened fired on a fire on players and on supporters, and that's reenacted within Michael Collins. Um, What I touch upon in the in the film, I mean, it it is it's extraordinary. Tragic moment in in Irish history and in, in Irish sporting history, but in the film it becomes an opportunity uh, to kind of contribute to the overall kind of epic drama of the film. So what was uh, I mean? It, it was obviously a tragic a tragic event in what and what happened, a horrific event, but it's transformed from an event where soldiers climbed over a wall with rifles and fired on on uh, spectators and players to an event where an armoured car uh, with machine guns in the film, as it's depicted, busts through the gates, goes on to the centre of the pitch, and then opens fire with a machine gun on the players. It becomes this... Jordan adds this additional kind of drama to, that didn't actually happen in, on the day itself, which is responding again, I guess, to the, the expectations of Hollywood high-octane drama action. The, 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 his sense that it needed that additional kind of element to respond to what audiences might might want to see in a film, um, which doesn't correlate to, to, to what actually happened in the period. The winnages, Barley is quite different insofar as it's um, an independent production I mean I think it has about five producers internationally, French, Spanish co-founders, British, Irish uh, directed by English independent director Ken Loach um, many of your listeners I'm sure is, are familiar with Len Loach's work, one of the most important independent directors in world cinema today and um, it has a beautiful uh, opening sequence that is a three and a half minute sequence of a hurling game and he uses hurling very deliberately in that sequence to again to define the distinctiveness uh, the, uh, this distinctive culture in Ireland and in this part of Ireland which is West Cork in the southwest of Ireland in the colonial context, in the context of the Irish War of Independence against the British, British rule and British control in in Ireland, and the I look at those two pieces together and talk about it, even in terms of their length of time on screen. The reenactment of Bloody Sunday in Michael Collins is in total, I think, about twenty seconds, where you you have you know three and a half minutes in in uh, in Gloet's film that he allows for this sequence to. Uh, reveal itself and to slowly kind of um uh take place to to happen to 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 move um and to open up uh, a way into a distinctive culture that you don't get in in jordan's film because i think jordan's film again is driven by a a kind of a, a hollywood sensibility and a hollywood uh exigencies about action and movement and you, you couldn't possibly have a lengthy three and a half minute f- sequence that's focusing on uh, a, a sport that most of the viewers would never have seen or be aware of, whereas Loach is willing to allow for that to happen and that that can, can become a defining moment, which it is it's the opening sequence of the entire film and it's the sequence that defines this sport and this culture for audiences Um I, Familiar and unfamiliar with Ireland.
1: Well, I mean, I, I, this was, I would say, my my favorite chapter. I, I want to emphasize for for listeners that we've just touched on many of the things that um, Sean covers in his work, uh, and from a from my po- my point of view, leading the the questions, a very a very um kind of historical look at some of these questions, but that, that Sean also takes on. Um, film is technology, film is representation, spends a lot of time talking about narrative and reportage. Uh, so so this is not exhaustive in, in any way. Um, I, I want to finish with one quick question, which is the traditional last question, which is now that we've enjoyed uh, this book, what can we look forward to you uh, next, Sean? What, what, what are you working on now?
0: So right now... <sighs> I've, I've a number of different, much as I wear a number of different hats in, in NUI Galway, I'm also working on a number of different projects at the moment. Um, I suppose there's kind of two, two areas that I'm, I'm looking at. One, in terms of the focus on sport and film, I'm now looking at expanding the, from the Irish to looking at the, the kind of European context more broadly. And uh, I've done I've already done some, um, I gave a keynote at a conference Earlier this year, where I looked, I I did a quantitative survey of European sports cinema. It's not something that a lot of work has been done on the American context has been very well researched and covered, but the European context less so. So I've been I'm now looking at writing, ultimately working towards a monograph, looking at the distinctiveness of the European experience of sports cinema. Um, Parallel to that, I'm also looking at at, uh, developing a project here. At NUA Galway, which is combining, I guess, practice and uh, and theory, and looking at how um, film uh, can be employed, or not just film, but more broadly, digital media can be employed as a as a tool to encourage and, and facilitate um, physical activity and sport. So, how we can use fi- uh, digital media tools in in that context, and so working with people here working in the health sciences and. Um, health and, and well-being, uh, exploring ways in which using what we call a participative videography approach, we can use film uh, proactively and progressively to encourage people to reflect on their physical activity and their understanding of sport and to kind of communicate that back as part of larger research um, question and, and, and
1: project. Both of those projects sound fascinating for me, particularly the first one I'm going to have to keep an eye out for that um and be interested to see it when it it finally comes out um thank you very much for joining us today sean uh thank you everyone for listening you've been listening to the new books and sports uh on the new book a channel on the new books network we've been here with sean crosson who is the author of gaelic games on film from silent films to hollywood hurling horror and the emergence of irish cinema out from Cork University Press. Uh, Thank you again very much for joining us, Sean. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And have, have a great day.